so I asked my students in class the simple question, do you think that humans are still evolving? And if so, in what ways? And of all the questions I asked them in class, that was the question that got the most conversations going. They had a lot of questions, ideas, thoughts. And so when I started to, to explore what others had, had written about this topic, what I found was that, in fact, there were some prominent evolutionary biologists, people like Stephen Jay Gould, who basically argued that human evolution had ended at some point in the, in the past. And that was intriguing to me as an ant biologist, because the arguments that were being made for why human evolution perhaps ended were based on the idea that, you know, in the modern world, it doesn't really appear like natural selection is operating. Thinking about making the connection between what's happening in humans and what we know about evolution from other species was exactly the way I thought about it. Because all of the things that I just said, which were arguments for why human evolution has ended, we can see examples of ants doing every single one of those things. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. And hey, welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. I'm your host, Paul Gibbons. And today, I get to talk about my first love, science. Today's guest is an evolutionary biologist and science writer, Scott Solomon. We're going to talk about CRISPR and other less direct ways humans are guiding our own evolution. For example, online dating, IVF, having children later, and more. CRISPR has been in the news lately. A Chinese scientist has claimed to have altered the genetic makeup of twins, giving them immunity to certain diseases, including HIV. But this raises all sorts of ethical conundrum, and the scientific community are up in arms about it, I think it's fair to say. Before we get into the show, I want to shout out my newest Patreon patrons, Ro Garl, all the way from Australia, Rye Hunts, Nick Jankel from England, and my friend David Bennett from England. My current goal is to get up to about $200 a month, and I'm about halfway there. So Patreon is the only way Think Better is funded. I refuse to sell ads. If you enjoy the content for as little as 2 bucks a month, you can support the show, and I will send buckets of goodies, including invitations to listen in, private subscriber-only content, books written by my guests, and more. Help me make a difference through hosting these critical conversations about what's shaping our future. Okay, thank you. On with the show. Some famous scholars, no less than Stephen Jay Gould, have pronounced that human evolution is over. Perhaps this is intuitive. After all, we've conquered diseases, we have better nutrition, we've removed many of the survival pressures that might have driven natural selection. Our guest disagrees, and we discuss why. We also discuss what forces today might be shaping our evolution as a species. So some show notes, if it's been a long time since you took biology, DNA is made of things called nucleotides, and those are adenosine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. Those are, well, you could call those the alphabet of life. 
The words that that alphabet goes into are triplets, ATG, ATC, CGA, which tell the cell which amino acid to add to a protein. When a single cell nucleotide is wrong, that is just one of those letters wrong, the protein may be defective, causing genetic diseases such as sickle cell anemia. The precision with which DNA and RNA replicate is just an amazing thing. So CRISPR, which we're going to talk about in the show, is a technique for altering a nucleotide or a group of nucleotides, and in doing so, you can repair one of those genetic mutations. CRISPR acts like a molecular scissors. It's shorthand for CRISPR-Cas9, and CRISPR stands for, huh, you'll love this, clusters of regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. The technology was adapted from the natural defense mechanisms of bacteria and archaea. These organisms use CRISPR RNA and various Cas proteins to foil attacks by viruses and other foreign bodies. They do so by chopping up and destroying the DNA of a foreign invader. And we can use that skill to help us modify the genetic code of ourselves, controversially, but of bacteria and of other organisms. So it's a very exciting technology, and you're going to hear much more about it in the next decade and 20 years. We're just scratching the surface with it. And uh, let's listen to what my guest has to say about it. So who is my guest? His name is Scott Solomon. He's a biologist, a professor, and a science writer. He teaches ecology, evolutionary biology, and scientific communications at Rice University. He's got a PhD in ecology, evolution, and behavior, wow, from the University of Texas, Austin, where he studied the evolutionary basis of biological diversity in the Amazon basin. He got to live down there. So let's welcome our amazing guest, Scott. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. Where do you want to start? You want to start with the book? You want to start with, I guess CRISPR's hot and it's in the news right now. I don't want to get, can we start with that maybe? Uh, we'll start wherever you like. I was going to say, I, it, you know, in in one way, starting with kind of uh, why I study ants might be a, a logical okay. starting place simply because it was not something that I did by design. I didn't I didn't set out okay. to, to become an expert on ants. Essentially, what happened was I was a first or second year graduate student trying to figure out what on earth I was going to dedicate the next several years of my life to. And I had a lot of interests that were quite broad. Um, I was interested in, in evolution. I was interested in understanding, you know, who we are as humans and, and how we got here, you know, our evolutionary history. But I was also always, even going back to my, my childhood, fascinated by, by nature and being out in natural areas and understanding how nature works and why it is the way it is. And so I was trying to find a project that would allow me to do some field work. And I was especially interested in conducting field work in, in Central or South America because I had a little bit of experience traveling in that part of the world. I, I spent a semester abroad as an undergraduate in Ecuador. And that was really kind of a life-changing experience, you know, learning to speak Spanish and being able to kind of get around on my own and explore out-of-the-way places and I really enjoyed that. And I was hoping hoping to find a way to do that through my fieldwork as well. But I also, as an undergraduate student, had uh, learned some of the laboratory techniques that were being used at the time to, for example, clone bacteria to sequence DNA with the technology that was available at the time in the, in the 1990s. And so I wanted to find a way to be able to use those techniques in my research. 
And it just so happened that there was a professor at University of Texas where I was in the graduate program that was doing that kind of laboratory research and also combining that with field studies that were happening mostly in Panama. And so it just so happened that he was working with ants. So really, it it ended up being uh, an interesting project for me first because it was an opportunity to go and do some field work in, in Panama and then to apply some of the laboratory techniques I had already known how to do and others I was learning to do. And the study system was ants. So I, I started reading up about ants and learning more about them and, and doing a little bit of initial uh, research on ants, both book research, but also you know, studying them in the lab and became fascinated by them. And so I started asking more questions about these ants and, and, you know, what they're doing. And I think one of the fascinations that a lot of people have with ants, myself included, is that in some ways they remind us of ourselves, right? They live in, in colonies, they're social, they have, you know, essentially cities that they build underground. And at least the ants that I was studying at the time, and that I still study uh, the leafcutter ants, they have even more similarities with us because they uh, they engage in agriculture. They're farmers. They grow fungi for food. And they even have bacteria on their bodies that produce antibiotics that help them combat diseases. So there's just all these things that they do that, you know, are, are things that, <laughs> that a lot of the times we think we're the ones that invented, right? The idea of using antibiotics to combat disease. We thought that was our idea, but it yeah, turns, yeah, out, yeah. turns out ants have been doing that for about 50 million years. <laughs> well, what's amazing about that is, of course, you're using state-of-the-art, well, state-of-the-art for the 1990s, uh, laboratory technology to study their genomes. And at the same time, you're way off the beaten track. I assume you're not in an urban area. You're way off the beaten track studying ant colonies. In, yeah. in faraway places. So that's kind of cool in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the place that we were doing some of that work initially was in uh, in Panama, right along the Panama Canal. And actually, one of the sites that we were working is an island right in the middle of the Panama Canal. So you'd be out in the jungle, you know, studying these these ants, and then a giant container ship would go by. Yeah. How wild. <laughs> Reminds you that you're in the middle of the, of the Panama Canal. It remind me of where the 21st century, well, maybe 20th century. Right. <laughs> um, 20th century this, at the time. What's your research question then? What's your research question? Why, what, what's, what are you trying to find out about ants? Well, at the time when I was doing that, my, my initial graduate work, I was interested in understanding the evolutionary history of these ants. And in particular, the question I was motivated by is actually a broader question that is not specific to ants. It's to understand why it is that in the tropics, so Central and South America and, and, and elsewhere in the tropics, why is there so much diversity? Why, is there, why are there so many species of organisms that live in tropical areas compared to more temperate zones like the United States, Europe, uh, most of Asia. This is a, an observation that was first made by naturalists in the 19th century like sure. Darwin. Yeah. But it's actually one we still don't have a good sense of. We still there's a lot of ideas, but there's no there's certainly no single explanation for why you why is the biodiversity on earth distributed in this particular way. And a lot of the ideas that people have come up with, for example, the idea that uh, perhaps big tropical rivers keep populations separated from one another. That was an idea that 
Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a contemporary of Darwin's, he first suggested. He saw, oh, we have one particular species of monkey on one side of the Amazon River and another species on the other. So maybe these rivers keep them these populations separated and they can evolve independently and eventually they become distinct species. Well, that's an interesting idea. And there's been some evidence for that in uh, mammals like monkeys and also in some birds. But if it's going to be a general explanation for why there's more species in the tropics, it should apply also to insects. Because in fact, the majority of species in tropical rainforests are insects. But there had been very little work done on that. So I decided to set out to test whether that idea and others would apply to ants. And it turns out that it did not. <laughs> uh, we found that on either side of the Amazon River, which of course is uh, one of the largest in the world, we could find ants of the same species that were almost genetically identical. So it seems that they were not really being separated by these these major rivers. Mm, that, is, that, is a, that is interesting stuff. In the biodiversity there, is it distributed you know, all the way up to the top of the food chain of the predators? Does it seem to be evenly distributed or is there? It is. And so, so, I mean, you see it at the bottom of the food chain with plants and you see it all the way up to the, you know, the, the top predators, as you say. Uh, there are a few exceptions, um, uh, certain groups of organisms that tend to be more diverse, say, in the Arctic. We see that in some marine species, but the overwhelming pattern is that there's more diversity in the tropics for almost every organism. And they've obviously explored the hypothesis that it's climactic, right? They obviously, it's like hot and humid. So right, that's the first thing that we all think yeah, of. Yeah, so exactly. We think of, oh, okay, well, you know, life thrives in places that are warm and wet, right? And that's true, but it actually doesn't explain. So you might expect you'd have more individuals living in places that are warm and wet, but it doesn't explain why you'd have more species. So how, what is the evolutionary origins of this? Is it causing new species to evolve at a greater rate or is it causing species to go extinct at a lower rate, right? So the number of species you have is a, is a consequence of the number of new species that are being created and the number of species that are disappearing through extinction and the balance between those two. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so let's let's draw the links. You know, humans are great narcissists, right? So it's all about <laughs> us, right? We're very sure. we're very species. So link this back to so human evolution. Then so right, draw the line between your work in the rainforest uh, and your work sequencing ant genomes to human evolution. Absolutely. So actually, what happened for me, um, I always was interested in human evolution as soon as I, I learned about it, and you know, especially in college. But as I as I mentioned, I started working on ants and, and got fascinated by them. So most of my research was, was focused on ants for a while. But as a new professor, uh, when I started teaching classes at, at Rice University, uh, one of my first classes that I taught was an introductory biology course that included evolution as one of the topics. And so I, I wanted, like any you know new professor, wanted my students to get excited about the material and wanted to, them to appreciate how relevant evolution is to their everyday lives. Because I think often there's this sense that evolution is something sure. that happened a long time ago and maybe doesn't matter for, for what's happening today. But my perspective as an evolutionary biologist is that, well, evolution is also an ongoing process. And so I asked my students in class the simple question, do you think that humans are still evolving? And if so, in what ways? And of all the questions I asked them in class, that was the question that got the most conversations going. They had a lot of questions, ideas, thoughts. 
And of course, as a professor, that's, you know, you get excited when your students start talking and start asking questions. It was clear that they were interested in this idea. And so when I started to, to explore what others had, had written about this topic, what I found was that, in fact, there were some prominent evolutionary biologists, people like Stephen Jay Gould, who basically argued that human evolution had ended at some point in the, in the past. And that was intriguing to me as an ant biologist, because the arguments that were being made for why human evolution perhaps ended were based on the idea that, you know, in the modern world, it doesn't really appear like natural selection is operating because we live in these somewhat artificial environments that we build for ourselves that kind of separate us from nature we you know grow our own food at industrial scales we you know have children that most of whom survive to adulthood and we are able to control our diseases through the use of you know drugs sure. antibiotics and whatnot therefore yeah. human evolution isn't really relevant anymore so those are the things that have been removed, but we've also got things that we've introduced into the environment. So we've got technology, we've got the internet, we've got Absolutely. online dating, we've got uh, people reproducing later because of culture. We've got you know, dozens of factors. I mean, it, you can't really prove that humans aren't changing without looking at the genome, right? Because we would, I mean, the first thing I think of is timescales, right? I mean, what's a, what's a typical timescale do we observe in, in animals? Do we observe it in one generation or 10 generations or 100 generations? Right. That would be my worry is that we wouldn't be able to see it on the sort of timescales that humans could observe. Right. And so thinking about making the connection between what's happening in humans and what we know about evolution from other species was exactly right. the way I thought about it. Because all of the things that I just said, which were arguments for why human evolution has ended, we can see examples of ants doing every single one of those things, right? So ants build nests that separate them from the outside world. And in fact, some in some cases, these are elaborate structures that have separate holes where air is coming in with oxygen and other uh, exit holes where carbon dioxide is coming out. I mean, they're incredibly no well engineered. That's amazing. Really? It really is. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, the structures wow. that they build, it's as if they were designed by an architect, and yet there's nobody actually in charge overseeing this. You know, the queen doesn't have any role in overseeing the the work that's happening in an, in an ant colony. That's a whole other interesting conversation about how these it emergent is. behaviors in the population. But that's anyway, that's a different conversation. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And yet, and we know that these, uh, you know, leafcutter ants are growing fungus gardens at an industrial scale. We know that uh, they're, most of the eggs that are laid by the queen survive to adulthood to become worker ants. We know that they have these bacteria that are producing antibiotics. So all these explanations for why we think human evolution may have ended in the past, ants are doing those same things, and yet nobody is arguing that ant evolution stopped. So for me, as an ant biologist, I saw that argument that human evolution ended as you know being something that I was anxious to explore in more detail because it didn't make sense to me that ant evolution would ever end. And by extension, it didn't seem to make sense that human evolution would ever end. So I, as you uh, suggested, I started looking into what do we actually know about changes to the human genome? What do we actually know about ways in which our biology has changed in the recent past or is undergoing changes today? 
And so that tied back to this question I asked my students of like, in what ways are humans evolving and how can we think about how our evolution will continue into the future? If you will permit me a 10 second commercial break, Think Bigger, Think Better only survives through the kindness and support of patrons. I refuse to sell ads. If you're enjoying it, why not hit that become a patron button on Patreon or on my website, paulgibbons.net slash subscribe. And now back to our show. Very interesting. That takes us to your book. So, so you've got, I think, three hypotheses or three reasons why we might believe that human beings are still evolving. Yeah, there's, there's essentially three lines of evidence that kind of we can look to to make the case that human evolution has continued up until modern times. So, so one of those is genome data. So we can actually look at the human genome. And because we, we pass our DNA from parents to children, and the DNA that makes up our genome is basically like an ancient text. It gets passed on from one generation to the next, and every generation makes some minor modifications to it that we call mutations. And mutations are basically just the, uh, the outcome of errors that happen when DNA is copied, and that happens every time a cell divides. So when one cell splits into two, it has to copy all of the DNA that makes up its genome so that you have two identical copies. And that process is not perfect. So you get some mutations. And so as, as generations accumulate, you have the same genome, but with just these minor tweaks. So we can look at the DNA, the genomes of living people, and we can use that to reconstruct the history of mutations that have happened at different points in the past. And it turns out that the processes of evolution, including natural selection, they actually leave a signature in the DNA sequence that we can look for. And so we can ask, okay, what parts of the genome have been undergoing natural selection? And what have those changes done to our genome? And at what point in the past did those changes happen? And so we can actually get all of this historical information about evolution by looking at the DNA sequences of living people today. So that's one piece of evidence. Another piece of evidence for our ongoing evolution comes from population studies. So studies that look at, for example, the history of births and deaths within a particular population. And uh, interestingly, a lot of those records actually come from churches, because of course, churches keep records of things like births, deaths, and marriages. And so there are um, examples of church records that span multiple generations within a particular uh, geographical area. And we can actually use those records as a way of reconstructing the history of that population. And one of the pieces of evidence that have come out of those types of studies is that the age at which people have their first child, and this is uh, women in particular, so the age at which women become mothers, is something that has changed in some populations in a way that is only consistent with it being caused by natural selection. And specifically, it's actually uh, natural selection that favors women starting families at a younger age. And the reason for that is that, on average, women who tend to start families at an earlier age tend to have more children over the span of their lives. And so women who have had more children over the span of their lives 
are essentially contributing more of their DNA to the next generation. And so that pattern continues. It's really interesting because we also have seen a lot of populations, including in the US and much of Europe, where what we see is actually a trend for the opposite pattern, right? We say that that women are actually starting families later in life. And so this is this is actually a really great example of how you can have natural selection pulling in one direction and culture and society exactly pulling in exactly the opposite direction. So there's kind of a tug of war that we see playing out now between evolutionary forces and, and cultural or societal forces. Ireland's a very modern country now, and I expect that the average age where women have their first child in Ireland is you know, I'm guessing, but I suppose the average is around 30, but many are many career oriented women. It might be much later than that. And I come from Irish peasant stock and I, I suspect, and again, I don't know this for a fact, but the first child was born to teenagers back in the day, 15, 16, 17. As soon as, you know, they were done with puberty, people used to marry and there was unusual for a woman to be single into her twenties. My grandmother, I think, married when she was seventeen. I think that was kind of standard back then. So that's almost a a twenty year <laughs> longer uh, people waiting to have children twenty years, which is interesting. So we certainly we certainly changed a lot in just in, in just in my lifetime. I mean, just the people that I know, the three generations that I that I'm familiar with. It's a fascinating phenomenon. And what do you think for humans? The since in Western Europe and the United States and and in Japan, birth rates have fallen, and uh, we are having fewer children, and we're having them later. Do you have a hypothesis about how that might be affecting our evolution? Like, if you were to wind the movie forward, yeah, this is kind of speculative, but you know, well, actually, you wind the movie, maybe not. There, there's actually studies on this because you're absolutely right. The birth rates have fallen uh, around the world, and. It's actually they've the birth rates have changed in a, a very consistent way around the world, and so demographers describe this pattern as as the demographic transition. So it's actually not only birth rates falling; it's actually birth rates falling in a way that is uh, tied to declines in death rates. So what you see around the world is death rates go down as there's better access to healthcare, better availability of food and fresh water. Basically, as modernization plays out, you have declines in death rates for obvious reasons, right? Quality of life improves. And so what's really interesting is that the decline in death rates is very predictably followed by a decline in birth rates. And so that those two things happening together is, is this phenomenon called the demographic transition. And this has started happening going back to the 19th century oh, in, in you know, Europe and, and North America and, and some other places. And so actually, we have the ability to look at how those changes affect evolution, affect our own evolution. So there have been a few studies that have been able to tie that change, those demographic changes to changes in uh, natural and sexual selection. So one example, there's a, a study that was based on population records from Utah in the 19th century. And they were able to find that as the population went through this demographic transition with death rates declining and then birth rates declining after that, not surprisingly, there was not much variation among individuals in how long people lived. So Generally speaking, people tended to live, you know, longer lifespans. There wasn't a lot of child mortality anymore. 
So actually, from an evolutionary perspective, that becomes interesting because if we think about the old phrase, survival of the fittest, right, which for various reasons, I, I tend to not uh, use that phrase very often, but we're very focused on the idea of survival when we think about evolution. And yet what we saw in that population is, you know, there wasn't much difference in terms of who survived within that population, but there was still a lot of variation in how many children people have. So as populations go through that demographic transition, natural selection becomes much more about differences among individuals in terms of their fertility and in terms of their reproductive output. Because ultimately in evolution, what matters is babies, right? The babies that survive and go on to reproduce themselves are going to pass on whatever traits they happen to have in their genes. So what that suggests is that as populations go through these demographic transitions, we need to be thinking a lot more about what traits influence reproductive output, influence fertility, influence you know the number of surviving babies that people have. And it's less about how long people live and less about survival and more about reproduction. Yeah. Is there any link to to prosperity? To you know, is there any selection processes of the you know not not just about survival any longer, but but about who prospers? So not just the number of babies and how many times the gene is reproduced, but how well they do. P- perhaps not, right? Because there's an inverse correlation between number of babies and um, and income, if I recall correctly. Right. It gets complicated. This is where culture and evolution become very intertwined, right? Because as you point out, there uh, historically has been a greater number of offspring produced by people who I would say not only are are less prosperous or less wealthy, but also less educated. That's a well-known correlation. And so actually some concerns about that uh, were some of the original motivators for developing the field of eugenics, right? Yes. In the, in yes, the 19th yes, yes. century by Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's cousin, incidentally. So there were these concerns that less educated people were having more children and that they extended that idea to suggest that our species will evolve to- Backwards. Uh, to evolve essentially, backwards. yes, to yeah. devolve, right? It'll um, regress, yeah. That's right. And so the problem with that, though, was that people were equating education with intelligence, because that's really what people were concerned about is that that we're going to become less and less intelligent. And so now we know that we really can't make that link, right? There are plenty of very intelligent people who are not so well-educated and and definitely some uh, uh, <laughs> well-educated people that might not be as intelligent as you think. So that connection that really kind of launched the original uh, eugenics movement was based on on you know bad science. But you are right that there is a connection between economic prosperity and education and reproductive output. So it is interesting to look at what that means for economics, but it's probably less relevant to our evolution. Is there zero correlation? I mean, you may not be the right person to answer this. Is there zero correlation between level of educational attainment and intelligence? I would have thought there was some correlation. Maybe not as much as a eugenicist would have thought. Right, right, right. Yeah, there, there. I mean, there may be some correlation, but the problem is once you start looking for correlations in genes and any particular trait, it's easy to find some correlation. The question is, right. is right, one right, thing right. actually causing the other Causal. thing or are they yeah, correlated yeah, for other reasons? And oftentimes, of course, they're correlated for other reasons. 
So let's talk about some of your hypotheses. I don't know, uh, online dating and uh, IVF. So those are obviously changing the gene pool. Well, are they obviously, are they changing the gene pool or are they changing how much we mix? I gather you had a little bit of success with online dating yourself as you relate in the book. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that's right. You had a very, very high conversion rate, as they say in uh, digital marketing. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I share in the book, the the story of how I met my wife, which as I like to say, I had a a hundred percent success rate in online dating. I I married a hundred percent of the, of the women that I met through online dating (laughs) because I went on exactly one date and it was with my future wife. <laughs> That's extraordinary. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of people over there seething with jealousy. <laughs> I'm a lucky a guy. People, what can I say? <laughs> a lot of people kissed, kissed a few frogs in the online dating scene. <laughs> right. Anyway. Sure. anyway sure. Yeah. So, so how might online dating be, be changing our gene pool? Yeah, so this is more speculative, but it's based on what we were talking about before, this idea that in the modern world, if we want to understand how our species is evolving, we need to be thinking about how fertility and reproduction are affecting our evolution. And so one of the things that we know about how humans choose our uh, romantic partners is that there's a lot of information that we get when we meet another person, right? So we we have visual information, how the person looks, right? We have behavioral information, how the person is acting. We have smell information. There's actually information that is conveyed about a person through our, our natural body odors, believe it or not. I went out mm. with someone like that once. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing is that we often manipulate those cues today, right? We wear deodorant and perfumes and, you know, et cetera, right? We manipulate that on purpose. Uh, we might not be thinking about all the effects that it has, but that's something that oftentimes we do. But these cues, the information that we get about people from all of these types of things, those are things that our species has used throughout our evolutionary history for many things, but one of them is in making mate choice decisions, right? So this is something that biologists study all the time in other species. So we know a whole lot about how birds use the color of their feathers and their mating dances and their calls as to attract mates. And so do we, right? Sexual selections, yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, many of those things apply to humans, but some of the cues that have evolved throughout our evolutionary history to give us information are no longer available to us in all contexts. So if you think about online dating, what kind of information is available to you as you're evaluating another person's profile and make a decision about whether you might like to meet up with that person, right? We might have visual information in the form of a picture. We might have some context, some uh, information about that person's background, their personality, their interests, at least as they <laughs> as they are conveying it. So in other words, the, the, the person is uh, putting whatever information out there that they want to have out there. But there's certainly not smell information. Sure. I remember a story from your book where uh, you nearly, uh, you nearly, your hundred percent ratio nearly turned into into a miss because uh, you were going to wear a black leather jacket, but some guy turned up in a black jacket who was a hundred pounds heavier, and your your wife to be decided that if you were going to lie that much about your weight, <laughs> she didn't That's want right. anything to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, it's a really funny story. So I almost didn't meet my wife because that's right. I, I said in our online communication that I'd be wearing one thing and then the black leather jacket, as you said, and she kind of showed up a little earlier than we had agreed to meet just to kind of scout the place out. You know, she was being smart. 
And so she sees this guy who does not look anything like the picture I had online. Um, (laughs) And she, yeah, exactly. As you say, she said, if he's lying about this, what else is he lying about? So that's true. There's, there's this potential in online dating, as we all know, to, to deceive one another. But yeah, from an evolutionary perspective, I think it's fascinating to think about how having, for example, visual information, but not smell information, what does that actually do? Right. Well, it could influence the initial decisions we make about who we'll meet in person and who we won't meet. And smell might eventually become a factor, but you might, you know, rule somebody out that you might have actually had a connection with. And maybe you rule them out because of some other information, maybe, you know, maybe visual information. But actually, if you had met them in person, perhaps the smell information might have actually influenced you in a way to to kind of, uh, you know, make that person seem more attractive. But are we also do you happen to know and you may not know this, but do you have to know if we are selecting from a bigger pool of people? I mean, online, if you're if you're dating online, I mean, you might look at 100 profiles. If you look at 50 profiles or you might go on, you know, a dozen dates. I mean, a lot of, in the online world, I gather tons and tons of people go on tons of first dates and not too many second dates they do a very kind of sharp funnel selection funnel so we're meeting many more people so the the way that we're using sexual selection might be accelerated like we're able to do more of that rather than you know uh, this is a caricature but marrying the first person that comes along which you might have done if you lived in a small village and there were only a few people who were of suitable age and availability then you'd only have a very small gene pool to choose from now you have a rather vast gene pool and also people of different ethnicities and different educational right. backgrounds and different geographies so that must be that must be a good thing i guess yeah i think you're right i think you we i think online dating is contributing to the trend that you're describing which is that people are more likely to to partner with somebody who is different from them, both in terms of where they live. So geographically, they might be further away. They might belong to a different, you know, ethnic group or racial group. In other words, come from a different human population, and they might be uh, different in other ways as well. And so part of that is consistent with this trend that we've seen in our recent evolutionary history of there being more mixing among human populations that were once relatively isolated from one another. Genetic mixing is a good thing, right? On the whole, genetic mixing is a good thing. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's actually another mechanism by which evolution happens. We call it gene flow. So genes flowing between populations. And one of the things that we've known for a long time is that that does have a beneficial effect in terms of creating diversity, uh, genetic diversity. One of the things genetic diversity is important for is actually allowing natural selection to work. So natural selection only can work if there's variation within a population. And it, it works as a way of sort of you know filtering like a like a sieve does, kind of which variations pass to the next generation and which don't. So if we want to be able to continue to adapt to uh, the, the world as it changes around us. And as we change our world, we actually need that variation uh, in order to be able to allow natural selection to operate. So yes, yeah, so that mixing is actually a very helpful and important thing. So, so there's two things that uh, may be shaping human evolution. And I, I, I don't know if we have time to talk about both of them. But one of them is there's a hypothesis in the world right now that adolescent brains are changing because they spend so much time 
in a virtual environment, let's say, for example. And the other one, which is maybe the one that we want to head to first, is CRISPR and what actually manipulation of the genome might do. Let's do CRISPR because we've had some amazing yeah. news on that. I mean, I guess for people who might not be following this quite as quickly, what's CRISPR in, in a couple of lines and, and what happened in China just recently? Right. So CRISPR is a technique that now exists that allows us to go in and make a deliberate, precise change to the DNA sequence of the genome of any species. So not just humans. We can do this in the laboratory as people are doing in laboratories around the world. Um, if you're working with, say, a bacteria, you can go in and you can change, for example, the sequence of a particular gene. So the DNA consists of the, uh, the base pairs that we abbreviate as A, T, G, and C. And the genes consist of a whole strings of A's and G's and T's and C's. Now what we can do with CRISPR is we can go in and we can, for example, change a T to a C or an A to a G in one particular gene. Oh. So this is actually really... I didn't know it was a single nucleotide. I thought that we were changing... That's entire. right. Because it's, you, uh, can change, you can change more than one nucleotide. So you can change AGCT to TCAG or whatever other sequence you would like. Right. And it's right, interesting right, right. because we've actually had the ability to change DNA for a long time. Yes. Uh, this goes back to the early part of the 20th century when, you know, as a very crude approach, you can zap something with x-rays that tends to cause a changes to its DNA but in ways that we have no ability to predict. So it's a very, very kind of brute force, kind of crude approach. And as technology developed throughout the 20th century, the technology became better so that we could say, for example, take a gene from one organism and insert it into another organism. So we've had the ability to do that for several decades. But now we've gotten to the point with CRISPR that we can go in and change it the same way we might go in and edit the text of a document on a computer. And so that gives us the ability to be very, very precise and deliberate with any changes that we make to the genome of an organism. And so it's one thing to do that in the organism of, excuse me, in the genome of a living individual. So, an so adult, you could, for in, example, in, in an adult, yeah. can you cook in an adult you cure, for example, sickle cell anemia? Because that's a very small that's right. hemoglobin. Can you do that or are we on the cusp of being able to do things like that? Right. So in theory, it could be possible to go in and change an adult human's genome if they have, for example, the sickle cell disease, which, as you say, is caused by a single change, a change in one nucleotide, one nucleotide. in a particular gene yeah. that affects their the hemoglobin in their blood. And, and it buggers and the whole so, thing, which is an amazing thing. Exactly. If you think about how many, how many proteins there are in hemoglobin, how many amino acids there are in hemoglobin, uh, in the in the four subunits, and, and, and a change to one nucleotide that codes for one amino acid buggers the whole thing up so that you have exactly. this kind of threatening disease. It's an amazing thing, really. I mean, how, sen it is. how sensitive the body is to some changes like that. That's right. You know, most diseases are caused by you know more substantial changes, but there are examples of diseases like sickle cell that are caused by just a single change. So imagine if we could just go in and change that one nucleotide uh, that DNA base back to what it uh, would have been in an individual that did not have sickle cell. And in theory, we could do that with CRISPR in an adult. But the problem is that every single one of your cells yeah. has the same, same DNA, uh, same DNA, and so we need to change all of them 
or at least many of them, in order to affect the change. So a simpler solution, of course, is to go in and change the DNA of, for example, an egg or a sperm or an embryo shortly after the egg and the cell have fused. So there's only a few cells. And here's the Pandora's box. Exactly. So if you make that change then, as the as that embryo develops into a fetus and eventually into a, a baby and, and later an adult, all of the cells in the body will have come from those initial few cells that you that you manipulated. And so you can make a, a long-lasting change by going in and making that edit early on in development. And so that is, on the one hand, very exciting as a therapeutic tool, as a way of correcting a genetic disorder, but it creates a whole nother set of issues when you consider that any edit that you make, any change that you make, will also be inherited by that individual's offspring if they choose to reproduce. Of course. And we don't know enough about you know, the genes that code for, say, intelligence or the genes that code for physical ability or size. or We don't know enough about these macro sort of phenomenon yet to go and tweak those, but we will, right? I imagine we will. Right, right. And that's the thing. That's why a lot of uh, researchers are biologists and, and others are are very concerned about the idea of using this CRISPR technology to edit the DNA of humans, especially in ways that will be heritable, because you're right, we we are still learning basic information about how every gene affects every other gene and about how CRISPR sometimes, in addition to making the edit that you were interested in making, it can also have other off-target effects. In other words, you might oh, inadvertently change in right. the DNA of another gene. And so we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Or if it does, we need to understand the changes that it makes to other genes so that we're not causing collateral damage when we when we I suppose you can sequence sequence the altered the altered germ cell, you could sequence it to make sure you haven't done that. But the thing is that we don't really understand enough. So our first first attempts at doing things like this are going to be super hand fisted. And if you uh, allow the baby to come to term and you may not be able to see these until the baby's five or ten, you may have created some a defect. I mean, you may have inadvertently, in trying to augment, have created a defect because we still don't really know enough about how all that works. So that would be that would be one horrible thing. And the other horrible thing is, of course, then we're back to eugenics again. Yep. And this could be a, this could be a treatment for the very privileged people to make themselves even more able to prosper. I suppose is one one consequence of it. That's right. So there's there's a big difference between making a change to a single DNA base pair, like we talked about with sickle cell, where we have a pretty good understanding of how that gene works and what that change would do in the body. But as you said, it's uh, it's a very different thing to talk about making edits to genes that, for example, are, are associated with intelligence, because that's an example of a complex trait, like many traits that we're interested in, that doesn't just have a single gene that influences it. There dozens can be and dozens, dozens yeah. or hundreds, and each of those genes has multiple things that they do, and they interact with other genes. And so do you make edits to all of those genes? Do we understand all of the implications for what those changes will do to the body in other ways? I think the, the short answer is no. We, we're not there yet. And perhaps, well, thankfully, although we, it's almost certain that we will be there. It may take 50 years because that, that particular sure. is, is so complex. So this sure. guy in China, what did he do? He, he, there were two baby girls born who had, he had 
CRISPR'd their germ cells so that they have a certain immunity to HIV and, and a few other diseases. Is that what is that what happened? I've, I'm, I'm trying to recall the. I'm trying to recall right. the. So what's been in the news recently is essentially it's a claim by a researcher in China who. Oh, it's only uh, a claim. It's not substantiated yet. That he has not yet been, uh, as far as I'm aware, it has not yet been uh, verified by a third party. There has not yet been a research article published describing what was done and what the outcome was. Right. So, um, so this is, you know, to a certain extent, it's still speculative. But if we take at face value this claim by this researcher as being true, then it sounds like what has happened is the researcher and his collaborators have um, made a change to the DNA of two human embryos it, that were then those embryos were then implanted through in vitro fertilization into a woman who gave birth to twin girls and the change that was made to their genomes was to a particular gene called CCR5 and uh, the reason that this gene was targeted is that it's known that there are humans who have a particular mutation in their CCR5 gene that gives them some resistance to the HIV virus. And so the claim here was that by going in and manipulating this gene, that uh, these babies could have that kind of resistance to HIV. But as I said, none of this has been verified yet. And uh, as he we released it on YouTube, which isn't best scientific practice, didn't he, or something like that? Right. There's there's uh, videos on YouTube. There was uh, he gave a presentation at a professional conference a few days later, and so uh, so so you know not the way most they- of the information. That's right. He showed some slides in his presentation. I think a lot of the information that's been in the news has been based on the data that he presented in these slides from this conference. Sure. So we need to you, learn more you, about if you, this. If you follow Cold Fusion, it's not out of the realm of possibility that some of this is invented. But, you know, here's the worrying thing, right? So these two baby girls are born ostensibly with this mutation that allows them to have some resistance to HIV. How the heck do you prove it? I mean, really, that's the yeah. thing. I mean, uh, there's, HIV, that the- there's two other things. I think one is smallpox. There's HIV smallpox and one other thing that it grants immunity. So, I, I, it, it strikes me as a bizarre place to start, but there you are. Yeah, I mean, it could be possible to to test the extent to which these uh, babies that were born will have that type of immunity because the way the HIV virus works, it it enters human cells in a particular way, and this gene influences the ability of the virus to enter the cell. So it could be possible to do some. We could do it in vitro experiments. That's right. That's right. We could do some experiments in a lab to see whether the virus does have the ability to enter their cells. But yes, really, we need. We need some independent confirmation that this has in fact happened. And then one of the things that people are concerned about is whether we know that there were not any off-target effects of the of the use oh, of CRISPR. Yes. In other words, were any of the other genes in these children inadvertently affected by the use of CRISPR? Sure. Um, I mean, we know that some traits don't don't appear, like autism doesn't appear till one and a half or two years. So if there's been some life-limiting effect, uh, we might not see it until their genes or something like that. Or later. I mean, there's plenty of genes that, that affect, you know, uh, how likely it is, for example, that you are going to develop breast cancer, right? And, and that's not something that you would likely pick up on if you're not looking for it until much later in life. So, so to some extent, we're still groping around in the dark here. 
uh, it's an exciting new technology. There's obviously can do some amazing things. It can eliminate a lot of a lot of diseases. You know, perhaps it'll grant us immunity to other diseases. I mean, there's, the possibilities are endless, but we're still we're still very much very early days, which is why the scientific community is partly up in arms about this. I imagine is that right? That's right. And this is a technology we really, I think, need to be very cautious about, much more so than any other sort of. Um, technique that might be performed in a medical context, because it doesn't just affect the individual that it's being performed on. It actually, because it it causes a heritable change, a change that we've passed on from one individual to all of their children and their children and so on. What we're talking about really is the ability to control our own evolution in the future. And that's where it's intersects with kind of my work that I've been doing to think about how our evolution is continuing to to play out because this is for the very first time an organism that is able to direct its own evolution and there's ne- that's never happened before in history so it becomes really important to learn more about how it works and to make sure that if we do choose to use it that we're doing it in a way that not only takes into account all of the biological and medical and ethical considerations for that individual, but also considerations about what will happen to our species in the future. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's entirely possible, say you goofed it up and say you, you, you modified the gene that makes someone likely to get breast cancer. It's possible that you would reproduce and pass that on as a mother before you developed breast cancer. So I guess, I mean, I guess you can you can examine these modifications at the level of the gene. But fiddling around with the human gene pool, which has been finely honed by hundreds of thousands of years, I want to say, of, of evolution. Sound, That's right. Yeah, it's just a scary, it's a scary thing. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I think you're right that it is an exciting technology and there's a lot of ways that it can be used to to improve people's lives and and to save lives. And so we want to make sure that we can use it for those purposes and do so responsibly and ethically. But we also need to make sure that any ways that it is used that have greater effects, greater consequences for our gene pool, for our species moving forward, that those things are being carefully considered. Well, cool. Well, we're almost out of time. I do want to ask you, you know, what are you most optimistic about, uh, you know, given either from your own researches or from what you see in the fields? What are you what are you most excited about? Oh gosh, there's a lot of things. I mean, I think <laughs> okay. yeah, I think, you know, the idea that our our species is more connected, more interconnected today, that we are a global species yep. now is just incredibly exciting. I mean, our our history is one of exploration and expansion. I mean, our species started in Africa some, you know, 200 to 300,000 years ago. And by about 50 to 70,000 years ago, we were leaving Africa and exploring the rest of the world and have expanded to pretty much every habitable corner of the planet and some that, you know, might not be quite so habitable, but we're there anyway. (laughs) And so for most of our history, we were these scattered populations that had limited contact with one another oftentimes. But today, that's not the case. We are uh, as interconnected as as almost any species on the planet. And so I find that incredibly exciting. I think it's wonderful to see ways that people can can interact and influence one another, learn from one another, spread ideas. And it affects our, our evolution because we also spread our genes. 
And to me, that's something that we should embrace and something to be excited about. And that brings us back to mixing. Mixing is on the whole, when it comes to evolution, a good, a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we know that uh, there can be some negative consequences to populations that are too isolated for, for too long a time through, yeah, through and, inbreeding. And, and inbreeding is yeah. a bad thing, yeah. That's right. And so, uh, so the mixing of populations helps to counteract that. And it's also the case that if a beneficial mutation happens to pop up somewhere in the world, maybe a, a yeah. You know, something that makes an individual resistant to the Zika virus or Ebola or something like that. It's much more likely in today's world that that beneficial gene will spread to a population where it can actually be beneficial, right? That's so to a place where that disease is actually uh, happening. And so that's a good thing. We should be, we, this is something we should be excited about. And, and, and we should probably wrap it up, but I'm just thinking in the 20th century and even unfortunately and really sadly in this century, there are people, of course, who think that races shouldn't mix, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. I mean, that was uh, that was a horrifying thought to people in the last century, and it still are still pockets of people who believe that, you know, whites and blacks should be on different continents. So it's it's kind of funny that there's an evolutionary riposte to that. Yeah, not only to the idea that mixing is good, but also we have uh, so much more information today to support the idea that races, as we have traditionally defined them, are completely inaccurate as ways of classifying human populations. It's not the same as saying that there are not differences among human populations. Uh, we can see those differences genetically, but they don't correlate well yeah. with the traditional racial categories. We see far more variation within particular groups than we see between them. And it's also quite clear that there's no way to judge one group as superior or inferior to another group. So so there's a lot of reason to you know be very suspicious about any claims that we should be concerned about a mixing of quote unquote races because first of all, they don't exist. And second of all, uh, that mixing is actually very beneficial. They're not a valid genetic category, you could say. They, they, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've just lost my, all of my white supremacist uh, audience has just left the. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, anyway, look, that has been uh, really awesome to talk to you. Uh, I've been That's so great. excited uh, to have you on the show. I, I was a biochemist in the 1970s. I don't think I've talked about biochemistry and molecular biology since. So, <laughs> oh, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. It's been kind of well. Fun. There's a lot of exciting stuff. I mean, yeah, the CRISPR stuff in the news has made made this especially, you know, uh, timely. But yeah, there's just so much exciting work that's happening right now in in all of these different fields. I mean, the fun thing for me about writing the the, the book was that. I got to explore all of these uh, fields that are not something that I'm normally, you know, working in. Microbiology, demographics, the the use of online dating technology, and what it means for for you know make choice decisions. They're they're fascinating, but they all tie back to this kind of central thread, which um, which I found to be fascinating. And I'll have lots of links to your book. Uh, the book, by the way, uh, I mean, I'll have links in the show notes, is Future Humans Inside the Science of Our Continuing Evolution by Scott Solomon. And it's a very good read. So anyway, thank you. Thanks really enormously for your time. That's been very... Oh, thank you. It's been real fun. Very generous of you. Thank you. Happy to do it. And hey, thanks for listening. And in closing, I want to tell you who's coming up on the show. 
There are a few guests, two guests, in fact, to talk about plastics, plastics pollution particularly. We have a guest also coming on to talk about behavioral economics and its effect on our world, consumer marketing, and on business. And we have a repeat offender, Parag Khanna, who is one of my very, very first guests to talk about his new book, The Future is Asian. He is an economist and participates in the World Economic Forum and is a fascinating, you could call him a futurist, a futurist and a strategist. So it should be a very, very good show. I like to keep listeners informed about my writing. I cannot sleep at the moment at all. I wake up after a few hours with writing ideas. So it's kind of a good kind of insomnia. Diagrams, images, models, paragraphs. Oy vey. I've acquired the rights to one of my books and was going to publish it as is or as was. Instead, I'm revising it completely. It should be out in a month. It's going to be a hell of a book, breaking a ton of new ground on how the behavioral sciences are transforming business. It will be in two volumes. Both are going to be called The Science of Change Management and Leadership. And volume one is going to be called The Behavioral Revolution in Business and Change. And your views on whether you like that title are very, very welcome. Some quick notes on pop culture. I've just finished two amazing shows. Killing Eve is a delightful female assassin. She's hunted by Sandra Oh, who won a Golden Globe for Best Actress for this performance. It was really a gripping watch. And one of the funniest shows I've seen in forever is called Happy. It's the quirkiest, weirdest, darkest cop show ever. An alcoholic washed up cop yawn 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 is accosted by a get this a blue flying horse unicorn called happy who is the imaginary friend of his daughter who has been kidnapped the show is absurd it's kafkaesquely absurd it's also kind of violent if that thing's distasteful to you but it is absolutely hilarious and so that's it for this week thanks again for listening thanks again and again for all your great support to celebrate the launch of the show and thank you all for listening i'm going to be giving away books lots and lots of books all you have to do is leave a review in itunes we're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks so head on over to paulgivens.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place. Mm-hmm.